You're listening to a teaching from Grace Church of Dunedin. For more audio messages and resources for missional living, visit gracechurchofdunedin.com. Grace actually invites you in to God's rule. Uh, grace opens up your eyes to see the proper place of God's law. And so when you consider gospel, the gospel promises us to make us free, yes. Free to what? And free for what? It never promises to make us independent. You see, grace invites you to come in and belong. Grace invites you and I to come back to the place that we really know as home, but yet suppress that truth. You see, we want to believe that life is best lived autonomously, that life is best lived when I'm my own king. And we buy into that lie constantly, but yet from the very beginning of the Bible, God's always telling us, there's a king, and Heath, you were made to live for me. And so gospel invites us to come into a new place of freedom where we begin to find our home under the rule of God's law. And so, as we've said a few times throughout the series, God's law is God's way of saying, walk this way. I created people. I know what's best for them. And so this is what we've been learning and discovering together throughout the month. Uh, We spent some time talking about how the law and, and comes into the mess of our lives, just like God always does. God never stands outside of the mess and says, okay, Gary Manch, when you get your act together, come on over here to me, right? That's not, it's not just Gary, it's to all of us, right? God doesn't stay outside of our mess and says, okay, when you get your act together, come. No, God always comes into the mess, and so does God's law. It's, it's aimed to come right into the mess of our lives in order to invite us into something else and something much, much better. And so Chute shared on March 8th, did a great job in telling us how, especially in light of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Sometimes, especially modern people, look at that and say, wow, this is quite invasive. Um, It almost sounds like conceited on God's part. But what it is, is it's an invitation for you and I to belong, to come home. Uh, Last week, talked about how um, the love, the idea of love, love is the hermeneutic, and we spent some time understanding this. Love is the hermeneutic for law. It's how we understand law. And another way of saying that is love is the summation of law for all time and in every culture. And so we spent some time looking at both Old Testament and New Testament to come to that necessary conclusion. And today... John will be continuing talking about how the law invites us to be a city on a hill. Uh, God calls us to be people not just who receive gospel, but who take gospel and then also bless others with it. And so we are called to be a people who shape culture and church. We've been doing it since the very beginning, and by God's grace, we will continue to do it as well. Next week, I plan to talk about how the law invites us into the shalom of God, and I'm really looking forward to that. But for this morning, we're considering how the law invites us to be a city on a hill. So uh, J.J. Howe, John Howe, ready the wretched regenerate, come on up here. And uh, church, if you would please stand with me, and I'm going to be our reader today for our scripture reading. And uh, then together we will respond as the people... Our reading is found in Matthew chapter 5, right after the Beatitudes. 
This is what our Lord says, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. For I tell you, verse 18, for, I truly, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, hearing, and doing of his holy word. And you may be seated, church. And so John's sharing with us today on this particular text and passage. I'm very, very grateful for John, proud of him, known him a very long time, and he's got a great word for us. So here's John. Thank you, buddy. Good morning, church. Well, welcome to Grace Church of Dunedin. Before I pray, I just want to say that I, I am very, I'm always excited to see new faces and visitors, and I've, I've noticed some of you have been here for the past few weeks, and I just want to let you guys know that uh, that makes me very happy because it means that probably you are being blessed the way that my family has been blessed by this community. Uh, my wife and my son and I have had ext- an extremely uh, great journey and adventure since we've joined this church and, and f- from the beginning, and I really want to recommend and commend and um, really encourage you to further yourself, get involved with our grace groups, whether it be a prayer group that meets. Uh, we have prayer groups. We have study groups. We also have community groups where we share one another's burdens and get together and uh, pray and, and talk about the sermon. And it's just a, it's just a really great time. So um, it is so important to not just come to church, though that is a command, but it's important to also be engaged with one another to be a community. After all, in Acts, we see that the Lord added to their number and blessed them through a day-by-day right, uh, life together. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and pray for us in the Word. Holy Father, we are gathered here in your name. We might not understand or see it now, but I ask that you would unveil our eyes to understand that where your temple is, where your people who have your spirit are gathered Dimensions of earth and heaven intersect. I pray that you would pull back that curtain, that we would see you and live. This world is a, this society is saturated by wickedness. 
but you have called us to be salt and light. How can we do this unless you fill us with your spirit? So we ask that you would fill us. That we would be overflowing with the love of your gospel, with the power of your truth, your righteousness, your law. But that is the only light of the world. You're the only thing that can illuminate. You alone created light in the darkness. So, Father, I pray for Grace Church of Dunedin that we would be a people who stand for you, who care more about you than anything that this world has to offer. Our status, our jobs, our economics, our whatever it may be, even our relationships themselves are so small in comparison to your glory. Our afterlife and our forgiveness and our justification, how great they are, but they are nothing compared to your justice and your name. So as I preach, how horrible it is to encourage people to not follow your law, I pray that I would not incur judgment, that you would show great grace and mercy to me, for you of all people know how unworthy I am to be here. I do not want to fall into your hands. I want to be pleasing to you. So I pray that you would hide me now. And that only your son would be seen, for he alone has the word of life. We give you all praise and glory. In the name of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 5 is our text, um, which Heath read for us. I want to, and I wasn't going to do this, but I have a request from Lenny Watson to keep it in the sermon. So I want to first introduce this sermon by encouraging us to have hobbits-like faith. Hang on, what do I mean? What I mean is that I remember growing up in The Lord of the Rings, and I still read through it. It's one of my favorite stories. It's so powerful and captivating. And if you have not read Lord of the Rings, please, please read it. Tolkien uh, basically incorporates a biblical worldview um, in this crazy fantasy story. Now, just to jump ahead, the movies... I remember when I first saw the movies, I was very excited. I liked the first one, I liked the second one. I remember when Return of the King came, and I left that movie with such a feeling of despair. Because you cannot change the ending and keep and it still be the same story. See, in the movies, we have Aragorn is, is crowned king. The, the ring has been destroyed. Mordor has been resisted, and everything's fine. The hobbits are still kind of these weird, like, I just want to eat more food and Let's relax. You don't really see the transformation that we see in the books. These hobbits become battle-hardened, wise leaders. They face wraiths. They face uh, demons. They face armies and orcs, captivity, all to survive and be victorious and do wonderful things in battle because of their sanctification, because of what they have gone through in this journey. Well, the way the book ends, the second to the last chapter is called The Scourging of the Shire, which should give you some idea. They go back to the Shire and find out that they still have some fighting to do. Saruman, who was allowed to escape, has, taken a, uh, has, has gone to the Shire and is there. So I just want to read the last paragraph. And that's the end of that, said Sam. Saruman is now dead. A nasty end, and I wish I needn't have seen it, but it's a good riddance. And the very last end of the war, I hope, said Mary. I hope so, said Frodo, and sighed. The very last stroke, but to think that I should fall, it should fall here 
at the very door of Bag End. Among all my hopes and fears, at least I never expected that. I shan't call it the end till we've cleared up the mess, said Sam gloomily, and that will take a lot of time and work. The gospel does not just call, call us to forgiveness and justification. The gospel does not just call us to salvation in terms of an afterlife and being a part of the kingdom. The gospel calls us to arms. The gospel is a call to take up the cross of Christ. It is the call to take up the kingdom of God as we live in a world very hostile to that kingdom. The context of Matthew happens to be Matthew's main point in his gospel is to prove and demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the Messiah promised of old. He is the Jewish Messiah, and therefore, Matthew continues, necessarily that means he's the king of all the nations. To Matthew, you cannot have a Messiah that just wants to free the Jews and not have a Messiah that also rules and reigns and liberates the nations. So in Matthew, what we see is the very beginning with the genealogy. If you were a Jew of the time and you were to read Matthew's genealogy, you'd be probably a little ticked. Because the genealogy, the way that it's structured, the way that it's formatted, basically says this, Jesus is greater than all these names. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than King David. And then he moves on. And being greater than all these things, he begins to demonstrate that Jesus is the Israel in person. Right? The Abraham was one man. And, he gives, and through him comes a great nation. And now, according to Matthew, this great nation has come back down to one man. The covenant and the promises are in Christ. So, we see that being this Israel in person, Matthew brings his gospel through and basically tells the story as Jesus reenacting the, the life and story of Israel. So, we see that Jesus... There's a lot of these, but just for example, goes through the waters of baptism with his cousin John the Baptist. This is paralleling with Israel coming through the waters of the Exodus. We see then that he goes into the wilderness for 40 days, paralleling Israel having to wander through the wilderness for 40 years. Unlike Israel, Jesus is victorious. Unlike Israel, Jesus is faithful. Unlike Israel, Jesus defeats the Satan, binds the strong man, and now what we'll see is he begins to plunder his house. He's also greater than Moses. As Moses, as we, and, and it's, it's, the Lord's trying to tell us something because like, without even trying, for the past few months, we've not been able to escape the Ten Commandments. We've not been able to leave Sinai. And we, so we become more and more familiar with Sinai, with God's moral law given on tablets of stone to establish the nation state of Israel so that he would be their people and precious possession. And as Moses delivers God's law coming down from Mount Sinai, now here we see in Matthew 5, Jesus delivers God's law from the mountain. We see that he calms the sea. We see that he feeds the 5,000 just like the manna was fed to the Israel in the wilderness, so on and so on and so on. Matthew's being very clear narratologically the way he structures his literature and his gospel. He wants you to understand that Jesus is the Israel in person. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king of the nations. He's a greater Abraham. He's a greater Moses. And he's your king. 
that brings us to Matthew chapter 5. After giving these wonderful new statements about God's kingdom, blessings, the Beatitudes, he says that you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Before we do that, if we can look at Isaiah chapter 2. Because the salt of the earth and the light of the world is connected to what it, what it looks like to be the city on a hill. You would think that I would have bookmarked it. Isaiah chapter 2. No. Well, this is NIV, correct? So I'll just read this. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Salt is a very important thing. Back to Matthew chapter 5. Salt is a very important uh, element in the world. Wars have been fought over it. We see in Ezekiel chapter, I'm sorry, Ezra chapter 4, that there is this dilemma, this decision that must be made, and the people making the decision basically say, listen, how can we do anything but seek out the king's honor? Because we, I mean, after all, we eat of the king's salt. So eating the king's salt has a lot to do with loyalty, commitment, because eating the king's salt means that you eat of his table. It means that he clothes you. It means you're in his employ. It means that you live with him, that he gives you this great life. More than likely, when you go to the market and go on errands for the king, the rumor, the whisper is, oh, here comes he who eats the king's salt. They know what that means. It's like wearing a signet ring. Also, salt, on this idea of commitment and covenant, the ancients would say, let's share salt. And that's a meal that they would have together. And Israel... Uh, there's a rabbinic phrase, that, uh, uh, a, a saying rather, that a meal without salt on the table is not really a meal. God's food, it is called the sacrifice of the temple, we see in Leviticus 2, required salt on the meat before it was acceptable to the Lord. We get our idea of salary, salarium, payment in salt. How many of you get a paycheck, right? It's not called a paper, it's called a salary. It's important. Salt of the earth is what Jesus says you are. And of course, we have preservation. The, under, the understanding that uh, meat, another phrase is that meat that's not salted is good for nothing. It's seasoned. All of these things. There is a saying that we have, let's go break bread together, right? Breaking bread, and we know what that means. That doesn't mean we're just going to go eat bread. Usually food has very little to do with it. We're going to get together. It's for the camaraderie, it's for relationship, it's for, it's for commitment, it could be for covenants, for discussion. Well, so the ancients had that saying, to share salt. And Jesus says that you are salt of the earth. And if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
It's interesting that salt cannot lose its saltiness on its own. This is something that was very known. This is another reason why salt was so important to the people of God, to Israel, and to Babylon, and to Assyria, and to all the ancients. But rather, salt does lose its saltiness when it's mixed with sand or with other things. Maybe you wanted to make a concoction with spices and salt, and so it would only be, it'd only be good for a little bit because those spices would neutralize the salt. It would take the saltiness away just because there's other things going on. And salt cannot control whether or not it's salty or not. Jesus isn't saying, hey, guys, please, be salt. He's declaring to you and letting you know if you don't, the reality is your ontology, your identity is that you are the salt of the earth. And it's not just one of you is the salt. In order for salt to do anything, it needs to be a lot of it. It's a community. Light is even bigger in Scripture. You're the light of the world. I'm going to read Proverbs 6.23. Turn there if you'd like. Proverbs 6.23. And this is a very important text for, for Judaism as a whole. This is a text that they, that's called, it, it's a text that is, they go to and they create a lot of things from this text as defining what Torah is. And there's other texts too that they use, but this is a big one. For the commandment for Torah is a lamp and the teaching Torah is a light and reproofs of discipline are the way of life. So according to Scripture, Scripture says of itself, it's, it attests to itself that it is light, that it is the way, that it is life. Also, interestingly enough, if we survey in the Scriptures and just follow the idea of light, we notice that the first thing God creates by His light, by His Word, if we can put those two together, ironically is what? Let there be light. God will be the only source of light. Isaiah 60, 19 says that there's no need for a sun or for a moon because God's glory will be your light. Interesting to understand that God does not need the sun and the moon. I know this is not very scientific, but covenantally, scripturally, God is the source of light. He creates a sun and a moon later to govern, to be stewards over that kingdom or over that jurisdiction. Interesting enough that at the end of creation, he creates us who are very good with jurisdiction over his creation. You are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. And the question is, how can you be light if Torah is light? How can we be light if God's law is light? And for the sake of time, we can just look back a couple sermons that I did where we talked about how the new covenant... The Holy Spirit, one thing that he does is he internalizes God's law, his light on your heart. This is what regeneration does. By God's grace, we are saved. By God's grace alone. And that salvation means that God's law is written on our hearts. That salvation means that we can be like the psalmist in Psalm 119, 131 and say, I open my mouth and pant because I crave or I am desperate for your commandments. 
Also, Psalm 119, we can our hearts understand what he means when he says, Oh, how I love your law. On your law I meditate day and night. It is sweeter to my taste than the honeycomb. It is more precious than silver and gold or anything of the riches of this world of the kingdoms. You're salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. That means that we are the means through which God's law, his, the light of his commandments, the life of his gospel comes to the world. Notice we see the city on a hill, Jerusalem, on the highest of the, of the mountains, the holy mountain of God. And what is something that's happening as the city on a hill is just being that light. The nations are streaming up to it. Things don't stream up. They're drawn up. That's another, that's another topic. But the point is, is that we have this light, this city on a hill in Isaiah, and the promises that the nations see God's law. They see his commands. They see his righteousness and his justice, and they want it. We also see this in Deuteronomy 4, that the nations will look and see Israel. They'll see his law. We got to have that. We have this idea. The law of God has come under hard times in our culture. Our culture wants antinomianism. Our culture wants to be our own boss, wants to be your own king. Our culture is a culture and society that defines love just how they feel. There's relativism. There's the enlightenment. The stench of the enlightenment has even seduced our churches. What we need to do is come back to God's law. Notice, if the light of the world is God's commandments, and now you are connected as that light, meaning you are the means through which the law of God comes to the world, the gospel comes to you, Paul says it in Romans 1 that the gospel announcement, the good news concerning the Son of God who's defeated death for the obedience of the nation, is later on, verse 16, the righteousness and the power of God in the world. Same thing is happening here. That's how God's word is getting to the world. It's not through me. It is through me in terms of my day-to-day life. But there's not very many people that are hearing this sermon this morning. But there are a lot of people connected to all of you. Salt and light. You are salt and light. It's not something to choose to be. It's something to realize we are and to cultivate our lives to become more consistent with what we are. Notice that people, verse 15, they don't take a lamp and put it under a basket. They put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. Remember a Spurgeon quote we've shared before about the, 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 the room looks clean until the light shines in the windows and it exposes these dirty corners. God's word is the light of the world shining through his people. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This idea of good works is not you just choosing what you want to do to try to be a good person for that day. It's not you just being in your social circle and being a positive person. Those are great things. Trust me, I love being around positive people. But that is not what's being discussed here in the Scriptures. You have to practice being the light. You are identified as the light of the world. But if you truly want to be consistent and obedient in that calling, we have to know Torah. We have to know how God defines good, how God defines love, how God defines marriage, how God defines life, how God defines humanity, how God defines sexuality, how God defines wealth and economics and all these things. Because every single thing I just listed, our society is way out there. 
And I say their way out there because I believe the scriptures, and they are very different than the scriptures. You could be more politically correct and say they disagree. But disagreeing on God's word, which is light and life, can only be death. Your salt and light. We'll come back to the city on a hill in a second. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus twice, and this is a very Hebraic way of speaking, he twice says, he denies, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish. And it's funny that he says it twice in this text, but then we still hear preachers preach on this text, and they say that he abolished the law. I don't understand that. And he tells us what he's done. He's come here to fulfill them. Fulfill can mean a few different things. We know, all of us can easily see, if we read the scriptures, how Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial law. And just really briefly, God's law has three divisions, right? The ceremonial law, which is the temple sacrifices and worship. There's the uh, civil law, how the, what, what is a crime? What is murder? How is it defined? And that is based on God's moral law, which we see in the Ten Commandments. And it's important to understand these three. It's very important to understand, and that's something for another time, but please just know that. So we know and we can easily see that God has fulfilled the ceremonial law because he's what? The once for all final sacrifice. He is what? He is the temple of God come back to the earth. He is the Shekinah, the glory that is returned to the world. He is the cornerstone of the temple, matter of fact. The rest of us are rest on him as the temple of God. We taught our kids last week. I was in there with them. What is, why, did, why did Jesus throw such a fit in the temple? Because the temple was an idol. It was gone. God moved out a long time ago. The glory of God had returned to the world in the form of Jesus Christ, the eternal God of creation. So, anyway, trying to get through the context. It's a hefty passage. So, what does it mean that he's come to fulfill the law? I think it's. I think it, we, if we look in the if we look at the text. Before, he talks about the light and the salt of the world, which is known as God's word, God's law, God's commandments, God's covenant. And then after this, in verse 21, he goes through and actually takes the moral law, the law of God, and expounds on it. He doesn't add to it, but what he does do is he does what the Pharisees are not doing, and he teaches the law as it really is, the truth of the law. You see, the Pharisees, and the, not just the Pharisees, but the religious leadership as a whole from all the sects, wanted to add rules and add traditions. They called it a fence to put it around the law to make sure that you don't get too close to violating it. And Jesus Christ thought that was absolutely ridiculous. He hated that. The Apostle Paul goes through great lengths. When he says you're not under law but under grace, what he means is that you're not under this law that was made to be this justification idol thing. Because later on in Romans 7, he talks about what the law really is, that it is good as God's light, as his expression, as his life. Anyway. So basically, for the sake of time, the text, I believe, God, he hasn't come to abolish the law, he's come to fulfill or establish that law. Because he's come to establish the kingdom. The kingdom is a society. The kingdom has law, has rule. The kingdom has an agenda, has a mission. A kingdom without law is no kingdom. 
And there's only one perfect law. And Christ being the king, establishing this kingdom, he says, the first thing we see him preach publicly in Matthew is repent for the kingdom of God is here. Well, that means that there's a law. And he has come to establish that law. For truly I say to you, verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, right? Not a letter, not a marking. This is all grammar. These are just the very little details. And if you want to know more about the languages, go to Marcel. But we, we go, if you look at the, the language, if you, there's a lot of things going on in those languages that we have no idea about, right? But what Jesus is saying is that I don't, no matter what is in the law, it's eternal. The point is that there's an eternality of the law. The law is forever. Why? Because it's the expression of the eternal one who is the alpha and the omega. We see the law in the garden. Do not eat of the tree. Why? So that you can have life, so you will not surely die. This has always been the law's intention, to show his love and his care and his lordship as a good king. The law will not pass away until it is accomplished. And this is where Hopefully you guys are with me now. We can have some fun. Not that it's not fun, but I know that I'm, I'm weird. I love law. What is the law and the prophets to accomplish? What is the end of it all? What is the eschaton? What's the purpose of this? Why are we meeting this morning? Why do we have community groups? Why do we want to teach our children in the way of the Lord? What does it matter? Why are you justified? Why do you have Christ? Why does he put his law in your heart? For what purpose? Is it just to be a club and just to be a church in terms of just having people of like hearts and like mind, like interests? Those are great things, by the way, and I'm not against those things. But is that the purpose of God's law never passing away until it has accomplished what it's been set to accomplish? I would invite us to go back to Isaiah 2, that passage. Because Isaiah 2 is one place of many where we see the prophetic vision of shalom in the Old Testament. The idea that God's vision for humanity is very different than the way humanity was living at the time. God's vision for humanity is that all the nations will come to his light and life. You see, because when Adam and Eve were evicted from the garden, when they were pushed into banishment and exile, all the nations are represented by Adam, our federal head. This is why we have his sin. This is why we have his exile. This is why Paul can say in Ephesians 2 that you are dead in your sins and trespasses. But the good news is there is a restoration from our exile. But God made you alive in Christ. Notice that that text also goes on to say, for you were saved for good works. The same good works here in this text about what it means to be a light of the world. God's law. It's not just helping old ladies pass across the street. Though, please, if you see an old lady, please help her. But it's bigger than that. It's greater than that. It's meditating day and night on God's law and gospel. Understanding that the kingdom is here. Understanding that this American society of wickedness does not have to be that way. In Isaiah 2, we see the eschaton. 
We see God's desire. And I don't think that if there's anyone who gets what he wants every single time, it's the sovereign creator and king of all the earth. His desire is to establish a city on a hill so that all the other nations can see his word, his light, his life, and come to him and join the city. This is what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means you are part of this city on a hill. Now notice, before we get to the city on a hill, this is heavy stuff, especially if you're up here teaching the law. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches other to do the same will call, we called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Later on, he's going to say, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. But right now, what he's saying here is he wants his people to know the law as it really is, which he's about to get into in the rest of the text. But he's, he wants you to not commit the sin and the error of the Pharisees. He doesn't want us to see laws as bondage. This law is this legalistic set of rules that somehow by following it, we can please God. He doesn't want us to see the law that way and add our own to it. Because if you add, listen, I had this debate with, with a brother not too long ago. But if you, if you live by any law other than God's law, it's not law. It's what you want. It's antinomianism. I don't care if it's Islamic law or secular humanist law. I don't care what it is. If we live by any law other than God's standard, then we are choosing to make ourselves the detector, to make ourselves the authority, and we're a law unto ourselves. I know some of you disagree with that, but that's just my logic. Do not be like the Pharisees. Let your righteousness exceed that. How does that happen? Well, first of all, being, being justified by the righteousness of Jesus automatically makes you perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We are righteous because he has declared us righteous based on the work of his Son and the work of his Son alone. There is no way that we can love this law. There's no way that we can live this law. There's no way that we can be light and salt unless God in his grace makes us alive. Faith in Christ alone. And that faith in Christ means that we love him. And Christ says, in my last sermon, remember in John, if you love me, you keep what? You can tell you haven't talked in a while because like, people are like, <clears throat> if you love me, you keep my commandments. And according to Isaiah 2, the vision is that these commandments, just the display of God's light and life, will bring them. So, being a city on a hill means that we are salt and light. Now, I want to spend, I want to close with just a couple practical things. Um, I don't know why I don't bookmark my stuff. William Wilberforce, who's heard of him? William Wilberforce, here it is, I, oh, I, my dog tag, dog is it. William Wilberforce is a politician who had a great team and people supporting him, but he was the face, and he pretty much was, for a while, the only politician in English Parliament that was an abolitionist. 
And he worked tirelessly for decades and decades. And you could tell, I mean, if you, if you read it, I mean, there's a great movie, by the way, on this. Um, but if you just look into Wilberforce and just see how he developed from this lawyer, realized, then was going to go into the ministry and then knew he was called for that purpose of doing away with slave, the slave trade. And it was a long, hard battle. He wrote this, this work, you can get it, this is actually updated in modern English called Real Christianity. Highly recommend it. It's not very long. And the current state of Christianity is a talk that he does. He says this, Even if you do not particularly believe what Christianity claims, you would be hard-pressed not to realize that it is a religious system that has produced untold benefits to the societies over which it has held influence. It is in this light that I again state that the spiritual condition of a country at any given time is an issue that has great political ramifications. In light of this relationship, it becomes extremely important that a society knows whether its spiritual underpinnings are in a state of decline or advance. If in decline, the society must determine if anything can be done to prevent a further slide. And I have my note, we are definitely in decline. hundred and thirty thousand babies were killed yesterday. Yesterday. We live in a country, or I'm sorry, we live in a world that has enough resources agriculturally, has enough water, it has enough food and everything for every single person on the earth, despite what the liberal gender will tell you. It's evil men that keep people from eating. It's tyranny. It's oppression. Close to 100,000 children under the age of five died of poverty and hunger last year. I know this is heavy. It's huge. We have a movie that was able to make it into with a graded R, a, a, a R rating into a regular theater where you can watch Big Hero 6 with your, with your family. A victory for pornography in this country. We're in a decline. In, in the 80s, 80% of Americans said that they were churchgoers. Five years ago, 30% of Americans said they were churchgoers. If you hold fast to the scriptures with your business, the government will take it away from you. And it's just the only way. How is it that we can fix this? I guess that's my question. If we know that these problems are here, is it okay to just chill, be a church, and just hope it doesn't come here? Like maybe if we were chilling in the Shire and we saw Frodo and them go ahead, we're like, I'm glad I'm not going over there. It's dangerous. That's bad. I'm just going to eat my third breakfast. But shockingly, they found that the darkness came to them. You are called to be salt and light. This is what it means to be a city on a hill. We are in a society that is saturated with wickedness. The wickedness that we see in Genesis 6 before God flooded the world because he was sorry he made us. The wickedness that we see Jonah is sent to Nineveh to talk about. Notice these two, the same word, the same wickedness, wicked, violent way, 
right? This wicked system in Genesis 6 finds God's wrath and judgment deservingly, but in Nineveh, God spares them. Notice that God spares them because the king sends out a decree based on a movement of the people already of repentance and has the whole system redone. The religious system and the idols are torn down. And God spares them. If we would have God spare America, we need to begin to be that city on a hill that we are already. I know that sounds weird, but... You cannot control that you're salt. You cannot control that you're light. Get out from under the basket and stop mingling with sand. Become pure. Become bright as a community. The sovereign king of all the earth is just to judge. But he has sent Christ to save and to restore. What great grace. And that great grace is seen, yes, we go to heaven. That's awesome. Don't get me wrong. I'm not mad at the fact that we'll have that great afterlife. But right now is not the afterlife. Right now is the already and the not yet. Right now we are living in the kingdom that is surrounded by nations who are wicked. And here's where I want to close. I truly believe that surrounding us is all this wickedness because we're a city on a hill that is very dim. See, God's promise is that if they see the law, if they see the light of my commands, if they see my son, they see the gospel, they will come. If we're engaging culture and society, if we're teaching our neighbors what love really is, what justice really is, what humanity and sexuality really are. All these things. They'll come. How does someone come to Christ in the first place? Through the preaching of the Son. If they don't preach, how will they hear? And how will they hear if we don't go? Paul. It is my hope And my prayer for us as a community, for my family, for my church, and for my society as an individual. And the law of God is for those things, for self-governance, for family governance, for church governance, and for the magistrate, for the government. The government is ordained by God. They They must obey God's law. If you don't obey God's law, what is it? It's adultery. It's sin. And it's my hope and prayer that all, that myself, my family, my church, and my society would be bright part of this city on a hill. That we wouldn't just be walking around outside of the city, everyone's all saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, no, it's cool. But that we would be bold in our life and in our proclamations. We can save babies, is what I'm saying. We can save children. We can save people from starving to death. The gospel is not just an idea. It's life and death. It's life and death. There's no greater wickedness than the silence of evil men. We've all heard that, right? We as Christians who are salt and light, who have Torah, who have the gospel, for us to say and do nothing is sin. How many people are hurting because we are not being faithful 
to the gospel. I'm sorry, it should keep us up at night. Spurgeon himself said that everything we say will influence someone for the fires of hell or the gold streets of heaven. Good old Baptist Spurgeon. But he's right. We get this from James. It talks about the power of the tongue to kill or destroy. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Grace Church of Dunedin. For more information about our mission and vision and how you can get involved, please visit gracechurchofdunedin.com.